0: Come one and come all. Welcome to episode number three of the Sitch with Grant Mitchell. I am your host, the self-titled Grant Mitchell, and I am back from a wonderful trip to Colorado. I was out in the mountains visiting my mom. My grandpa came along for the ride. We had a tremendous time as a family. We got to watch the Super Bowl. As we all know, Kansas City Chiefs won with the last second field goal. Got to watch some NBA games. Had a very nice time. Got to go out, spend some time together as a family. My mom has her own cooking show. I appeared as a sous chef challenge you to find somebody who can cut up potatoes as good as I can take that. And it was a wonderful trip, but I'm back and I'm happy to be back doing what I love the most. And that is talking about some sports. And we are going to start today's show with the one and only thing that happened in sports over the weekend. The only major thing stories from the NBA all-star game. Now, if you weren't paying attention or if you'd missed the game, Team Giannis beat Team LeBron 184-175. to 175. Team LeBron was 5-0 in the All-Star era, or at least the new All-Star era, where the captains get to pick the teams, and Giannis ended his streak. Ironically, Giannis barely played in this game. He played maybe the first 10 or 15 seconds, got himself a very quick dunk, and then exited the game. He sprained his wrist in the Bucks' last game before the NBA All-Star break, so it was a bit of a surprise to see him there in the first place. But he said that he wants to be remain humble. He doesn't know if he'll ever be back at an all-star game. And so he wants to be there and support the rest of the league while he can. I think it's awesome. I think that's exactly what the face of the league should be doing. Maybe you could say LeBron's still the face of the league. Maybe it's Steph. But Giannis is certainly up in that conversation. And over the next three or four years, you have to assume that he will be looked as As unanimously the guy. So it was great to see. I really appreciated him getting out there. Loved hearing what he had to say during the pregame interviews and during the game with Draymond Green on the sideline. Awesome guy. Absolutely love Giannis. Let's dive into the game more itself, though. Let's start with the new format. Not necessarily a new format in terms of structure, but a new format in terms of scheduling. The captains got to pick their teams live from the court on this mini stage in front of the Utah fans, whereas before the draft would be televised. And we had some great moments like Charles Barkley calling James Harden the dribbler and LeBron trying to get Kevin Durant to force the pick Harden after Harden forced his way out of Brooklyn. So some great moments there. I actually quite enjoyed getting to watch the players get picked live. It was cool to see the happiness and the respect that they had for both of their captains. I think that's something that really was not lost on me. Every player that was picked was smiling, dapping up their captain, maybe embracing one another. It was very cool to see LeBron and Giannis, two very liked guys by all of their peers, well-respected. The NBA's plan to have the reserves picked first so that we don't know who gets picked last. I mean, come on. Jaron Jackson Jr. was sitting over the side waiting forever. And then we all know what happened. Nikola Jokic, one of the two players left of the starters, decided to pick himself, leaving the hometown boy Lowry Markinen as the last pick of the starters. Now, Jokic said after the game, or rather Mike Malone said for Jokic that he didn't realize that Lowry was still on the stage and he felt bad and he wanted to apologize. Maybe that's the case. I have no reason to think Jokic is lying about it, but it was still a hilarious moment. So overall, the new format, I thought it was good thought it was an improvement. I thought it added even more theater and drama, although it did significantly hinder the betting crowd. We didn't get to make any videos previewing the game. We didn't get to write any articles about it. There was no discussion about futures because we didn't even know who the teams were going to be. So it is what it is, has its pros and it has its cons. Mike Malone, who I was just talking about, he coached Team LeBron. He said after the game that it was the worst basketball game ever played. Now, I don't necessarily know if that's true because there are a lot of high school federations out there that still don't have shot clocks. It's 2023. How do we not have shot clocks in high school basketball? So you can see games ending two to nothing, four to two, stuff like that. So I wouldn't say this is the worst basketball game ever played, but it was definitely one of the worst professional games that I have ever seen. No denying that. I mean, there there's always no defense in the all star game. Players don't want to get injured, and I don't fault them for that. But we had seen an increase in competitiveness in the fourth quarter with the Elam ending. Now, for those who don't know, the Elam ending essentially means that games are not dictated by a clock. They end on a final score. And the way that the NBA has structured this is that the team that has the most points after three quarters, they need to score 24 points on top of what they already have in the fourth quarter again, a timeless quarter. There's no clock on it. They just need to score 24 points. And once they, once they do that, they have won the game. So let's say team a has a hundred points and team B has 95 points. Team a needs to get 124 to win. And then team B also needs to get 124. They were the team that trailing, again, that 24 points is added to the team that is ahead after three quarters. It can sound complicated, but when you see it in action, it's actually somewhat easy to understand. Ultimately, like I said earlier, Team Giannis was the team to hit that 184 final score mark. The final score says it was only a nine-point game, but really Team Giannis was in control by about 15 to 20 points for most of the game. But one thing that was really noticeably absent from this game was the competitiveness in that fourth period with the Elam ending. And years past, I mean, we had seen guys playing playoff level defense, really competing to win money for their charity. The winner of each quarter gets to donate. I believe it's $100,000 to a charity of their choice. And that was just not there this year. I mean, with maybe when i think the team lebron had brought it to let's say around five points i don't know if it was five exactly but it was right around five points and then that's when you hear from the announcers all of a sudden we've got a little defense being played meanwhile team Giannis is one bucket away from winning the game is that really what the nba wants to see players not trying until they're at the last score of the game the answer is no And do I think this game would have been competitive if LeBron had stayed in the game? By the way, those who don't know, LeBron injured his hand attempting to block. He smashed it on the rim. I think he's okay. We haven't seen. It's been labeled a hand contusion, no fractures, no breaks, no tears of ligaments. So he should be all right. But he just didn't want to risk it in the second half. Had LeBron been in that game in the second half? and maybe Giannis even to a certain extent, even though his team was winning. I think we would have seen a lot more fireworks and a lot more tenacity at the end. I feel like those two have a good grasp on what it is as the, to be the face of the NBA, what the responsibilities of the players are. And without them, it was maybe sort of lost in those moments. So not a very good game to watch as a spectator. Jason Tatum was the standout of the game. He had an all-star game record, 55 points 22 of 31 from the field, 10 of 18 from three Damian Lillard, who was the guy first picked for the reserves, had 26 points off the bench, eight of 20 from three. He took 23s and most of them were from or beyond half court. Uh, His final shot, the final shot of the game, was a Damian Lillard three-pointer. Hit us with the signature Dame time. Donovan Mitchell, also on Team Giannis, 40 points, 15 of 25 from the field. Jalen Brown had 35 for Team LeBron. In the losing effort, Kyrie and Embiid had 32 for Team LeBron. Interesting game. Fun, as always, to see all the guys out there. But the NBA is unfortunately hitting the same sort of avenue that the NFL went down recently when they had to scrap their Pro Bowl, replace it with a flag football game, and that was not entertaining either in the slightest. But it it was a forced change. I'm very concerned that the NBA is nearing that point. And it's sad for me because I really did enjoy watching the Elam endings, especially when LeBron hit the game winner in Cleveland last year. It was a closely fought game. Um, You saw guys like Kyle Lowry diving for loose balls at the end of the game. Like, when does that happen in the All-Star game? And I thought it was finally coming back with the Elam ending. But as soon as LeBron and Giannis don't play, we see it go away. All-Star weekend is also in jeopardy as an entirety. Julius Randle, a guy shooting 33.8% from the field is in the three-point shootout. Kevin Herter scored, what, was it 15 points? One of the worst ever. Damian Lillard won, and he should have been there, and he should have won, so I was happy to see him. But I'm just wondering, when did we hit the point where stars aren't expected to compete in events that fit their strengths? Like, why are Steph Curry's injured? Okay, but why isn't Clay Thompson in the three-point shootout? Why isn't Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, who's shooting 45% from the three-point line, in the shootout? And then switching over to the dunk contest. Why isn't John Morant in there? He said he'd take him a billion dollars or a billion likes on social media for him to do the contest. Why? You're one of the most exciting players in the league. Why not go out there and participate? Instead, we have to watch Mac McClung. And Mac McClung was excellent, by the way. Three out of four of his dunks were 50s. He was the deserving winner. It was awesome. It was the best dunk contest that we've seen probably since 2016 when Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon were going back and forth. But why does it take Mac McClung to revitalize the energy in the slam dunk contest? This is a guy who's spent most of his professional career in the G League. He's bounced around from team to team. He's played in one NBA game this season. Why is he the one who has to step in? Now, he said he's going to return next year, and I'm looking forward to it. But shame on those other guys, especially Jericho Sims. Two-handed honey dip dunk, two-handed el- elbows hanging on the rim. That's what the honey dunk, honey dip is. Excuse me. It was cool to see. It wasn't a 50 by any stretch of the imagination. But then he goes back for a second dunk and does the same thing, but just with one arm. It, it's less impressive. And he does it, and then he opens up the envelope that says 50. No. I was a 40 at best. It could have been a 30. I've just given his first dunk. It was just the same thing. Just less impressive, not impressed by the all-star game in the all-star weekend whatsoever. We are going to move on now and put that behind us. We are going to talk about the battle that's going on in the Eastern conference. Now the picture I have right here is Giannis Antetokounmpo. Why you might be asking the bucks are second in the Eastern conference. Why don't you have a picture of Jason Tatum? Well, I had a picture of Tatum for the all-star game, so I didn't want to use him twice. But beyond that, the Milwaukee Bucks are my pick to win the Eastern Conference in the regular season. I don't want to spoil my postseason pick. We will get to that later but the bucks are 47 very quiet 41 and 17 said 47 41 and 17 whereas the celtics are 42 and 17 both teams are absolutely superb at home above average on the road and that's really all you can ask for playoffs come down to winning at home so that's why it's getting such a high seed is so important bucks are also 10 and 0 in their last 10 games and on a 12 game winning streak heading into the all star break The Celtics were seven and three over their last 10. Also in the hunt, the Philadelphia 76ers, 38 and 19, three games behind first place. And in fourth place, the Cleveland Cavaliers, five games behind the Boston Celtics at 38 and 23. So what do I expect from the Eastern conference moving forward here? The Celtics are the team to beat. And everybody knows that they got to the finals last year. They melted down a little bit. Tatum and Brown, we can say they were bad, but it was more of a learning experience for them. We've seen other star players have really bad finals. I mean, Larry Bird scored eight points in two finals games one time. That was the year the Celtics still won the finals, and Cornbread Maxwell was the MVP. We saw what happened to LeBron when he played the Mavericks. He completely melted down. We saw what happened in his first trip to the finals when he was still with the 06-07 Cavs. Just not did not have the support structure he needed to do anything. So moments like these are good for guys. Um, But as much as I say that Giannis and crew, they've been to a finals, they've won a finals perennially. I feel like they are the team to beat. This is, this is something that I think is good to keep in mind for betters and fans. Just anytime they're trying to predict the future, it's much better to say who is the safe bet to accomplish this feat, whatever it might be. Then say, what is the flavor of the month? What's the flavor of the week? Here's what I mean by that. Last year, the Celtics were the flavor of the week. They got to the finals, and it was sort of out of nowhere. It was the year they took the leap, right? And maybe they're a little more established now, but people could still point to them as being the flavor of the week. Or maybe it's the Cleveland Cavaliers because they just picked up all these guys. Maybe it's the 76ers because they just got James Harden. Amid all of that, the Bucks have been great through and through. Every single year, you can count on them to be one of the top seeds in the conference. You can count on them to have the best player in the conference and the best player in the NBA. They have a great head coach. They have a nice rotation of bench guys. They just made a very smart acquisition in Jake Crowder. He's going to fill that P.J. Tucker role very well. They're just too well-balanced, too proven, too cultured for me to overlook them. So I'm going to pick them to overcome that half-game deficit and win the Eastern Conference in the regular season. Um, another interesting team, though, the Philadelphia 76ers, and they are flying under the radar again because of the Bucks and because of the Celtics. They are fourth in net rating and 15 and four in their last 19 games. Now, those are pretty astounding numbers, but none is impressive as Joel Embiid's season averages: 33 points, 10.2 rebounds, four assists, a block and a half, and 1.2 steals per game. The guy is just Unreal, and he's shooting 36% from three, 54% from the field, 86% from the free throw line. You can't really ask for a whole lot else out of somebody. Even the other big center in the league, Nicole Jokic, we're going to talk about him later. Embiid is arguably having the best season out of anybody in the NBA this season. The Sixers are excellent on defense. James Harden isn't putting up 60 point triple doubles anymore. But he doesn't have to he's comfortable giving you 22 24 25 a game with 10 11 12 assists and that's been the 76ers winning formula. They've got also got other other contributors on their roster Tyrese Maxey as we all know is a solid young player Tobias Harris maybe he's not worth the max contract but the 15 and 60 gives you is an invaluable. You've got shooters, you've got defenders, you've got bench depth. This is a very solid team and people don't seem to really be talking about them. And I have a feeling those people are going to be in for a rude awakening at some point further down in the East. One team that we know for getting to the finals or at least getting to the conference finals, the Miami Heat. Now, they are seventh in the Eastern Conference, not used to seeing them that low. They're 32 and 27, which is exactly 10 games behind the Boston Celtics. However, they are only a half game behind the New York Knicks for the sixth seed. Now, you might be asking, why is the sixth seed so important? Well, that's the last team that's guaranteed to make it into the playoffs or at least the playoff bracket teams, seven, eight, nine, and 10 have to navigate the play in tournament. So right now the Miami heat will be playing the Hawks. If they win that game, they go to the playoffs. And if they lose that game, they would play the winner of Toronto and Washington again, as things stand, if they won that game, they would then be the eighth seed and move on to the playoffs. Here's why I think that moving up is so important for this team. They are built on principles of what it is to be a team. Identity, defense, hustle, effort, structure, discipline, all those synonyms. I don't know if they are very trustworthy in a best-of-one scenario. And against the Atlanta Hawks, you know, Jimmy Butler's still there. Bam Adebayo's still there. Tyler Hero's still there. But some of their bench guys and their contributors, especially Kyle Rowry, you would love to be getting more out of them, but you're just not. And the Wizards are a dangerous team. Toronto plays very similarly to Miami. It's not a great matchup for them in a best of one. You really want to be in for the long haul so you can let, again, those principles of what it means to be a team affect the other team. So ultimately, do I think Miami is going to move up into the sixth seed? I could see it. With the most likely scenario I see, however, is I see the Knicks, who are the current sixth seed, Moving past the Brooklyn Nets into the five seed and Miami moving into the six seed. If that happens, obviously Miami's guaranteed to be in the playoffs. If they do finish as the six seed right now, they would be facing the 76ers in a seven game series, and that would be very entertaining. This scenario is also why it's extremely important for the Brooklyn Nets to hold on to a top six seed. They've got a two and a half game gap on the Miami Heat. They're seven and a half games behind first place. If Brooklyn goes into that play in again, It's a similar situation to the Miami Heat. They don't have those guys that make you feel comfortable winning a one-and-done. They don't have a takeover player. Yes, Brooklyn Bridges has been incredible since he's arrived, but he's not going to be a reliable 40-point scorer every time you need him to be. So that's my outlook on the Eastern Conference. And now, why don't we take it on over to the Western Conference? And we are going to be talking about a few teams at the top, as we all know, the Denver Nuggets are leading that conference. They are 41-8 and team, just behind the Celtics for best record in the NBA. Five games behind them, the Memphis Grizzlies. A few games behind them, the Sacramento Kings. And then the rest of the West. Here's my take on the Western Conference. I think that a lot of the teams at the top are fraudulent. And the ones that aren't, they're not guarantees. And so I'll break those down one by one. My biggest problem with the Denver Nuggets is that they have a postseason problem. Nikola Jokic is not somebody you look to when you look at the landscape of the great players in the NBA. And you say, I need one guy to get the ball in the bucket. We're down two points with 10 seconds left. Give it to him and everything's going to be okay. Nikola Jokic is not the player you're picking. You're not picking him first, second, third, fourth, fifth. I can name you plenty of guys right now that I'm taking before him. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Luka Doncic, Kyrie Irving. Okay, that's not even a guy who's an MVP consideration. I would pick maybe Damian Lillard. There are are so many players that you're thinking of in the dire moments, who do we want to have the ball before you think of Nikola Jokic? Now let's look at the other end of the court. We're up two points. The other team has the ball with 10 seconds left. I need to stop desperately. Who am I going to take? I'm not taking Jokic. That's for damn sure. Let's just look at centers. We don't even have to look at other positions. I'm taking Joel Embiid. I'm taking Bam Adebayo. I mean, Nick Claxton and Brooke Lopez are leading defensive player of the year candidacy. Jaron Jackson. I would take LeBron again. I would take Durant again. There, there are so many players out there. I would take Mikhail Bridges. As long as I don't have a point guard, I could find you somebody on nearly every team that I would take in a defensive scenario over Jokic. So when we get to the, the playoffs, where the possessions are of heightened importance, the game slows down. Every bucket means more. Every stop means more. If Jokic is devalued on both ends, why should I be confident in the Nuggets? Now, on the flip side, Jamal Murray always raises his game in the playoffs. He has been awesome, and this Denver team is deeper than ever, and they're finally healthy. That's been the big problem for them in recent years. So this is going to be as good of a chance as any as they've had. The closest they've gotten to getting to the finals was in the bubble when they took the Lakers, who then won the championship, to six games in the Western Conference Finals. Does making the Western Conference Finals mean that this year is a success for the Nuggets? Maybe in some people's eyes, in mine, it wouldn't be a failure, but it would be more of the same. Until I see this team in the finals, I'm always going to look at them a certain way and with a certain stigma. Now let's move on to the Memphis Grizzlies, who I have an even bigger problem with. And this is interesting. A lot of people saw how good the Grizzlies were last year and assumed that they were going to be a shoe-in for the finals next year, as in this year or the year after. As they got older, they would start to develop more. Their players would get more experience. They would be even better. They would sign, keep role players, and the team would blossom. That's what everybody assumed. I don't think that's happening, personally. I don't think just because you had a good season when you were young is a guarantee that you're going to be better next season when you're a year older. And I do feel like we're seeing that. Yeah, Memphis is second in the Western Conference. They're exciting. They've got a young coach. They've got a young team. They've got the most exciting player in the league, John Morant, leading their line. They've got another all-star in Jaron Jackson. We know how good Desmond Bain is. Hater loved Dylan Brooks. He can at least play some defense, and he's scrappy. Their role players are good. Steven Adams is a nice veteran who gives you some integrity inside. But Memphis, they're 15th in offensive rating and 25th in true shooting percentage And on top of that, I haven't checked in a week or two, but when I did last look, they were the worst free throw shooting team in the NBA. All of those are very bad when we're looking ahead into the playoffs and especially the offensive rating because Memphis, again, they're so young. They love to play with pace. They love to fly. So when things slow down and you're in the half court and you've got these young guys who are in their own heads, that number's just not good. Or when the playoffs are physical, People are getting fouled. You go to the free throw line and you're shooting a worse percentage than everyone in the league. It's a big problem. And these problems have already started to manifest themselves in the regular season. Here's how Memphis has played against the other top five seeds in the Western Conference. Obviously, they are the second seed. So we are talking about the top six teams in the West. They're two and two against the Phoenix Suns, 0-1 against the Denver Nuggets, 2-2 two and two against the Sacramento Kings, they haven't played the Los Angeles Clippers, and they're 0-1 against the Dallas Mavericks. So they don't have a winning record against any of the best teams in the West, teams that they are going to play in the playoffs, and they're 4-6 and six a total against these teams. On top of that, if I look at other teams who have a chance to play them in the playoffs, I'm not convinced that they can beat all of them. Let me rephrase that. I'm not convinced that they are a surefire win in those series. Yes, they could beat them, but they could also lose. The Pelicans, if they get Zion back, they're dangerous. Would I favor Memphis? Yes, but I wouldn't guarantee it. The Timberwolves, I would probably say that's an unlosable series, although you never know. The Warriors, listen, I believe the Warriors dynasty is over, and we are going to talk about that soon. But if you've got Steph Curry, you've got a shot. and The Warriors beat the Grizzlies last year. We know that they have that emotional rivalry. Maybe Draymond will get the guys up for it. You never know. The Los Angeles Lakers with their improved roster. Again, I would favor the Grizzlies, but in no shape or form am I ruling out the retooled Lakers from beating the Grizzlies in a best of seven. We can go player for player. John Morant, LeBron James. John Morant's probably a slightly more effective regular season player at this point in his career, but in the postseason, again, when those possessions slow down and experience becomes so crucial, we can at least call it a draw, if not go to LeBron. Anthony Davis is better than Steven Adams and Jaron Jackson put together. D'Angelo Russell is equivalent to Desmond Bain, let's say. And from there, it's all role players. And I think they stack up pretty evenly, especially with the additions of Jared Vanderbilt and Malik Beasley. My point about the Grizzlies is they're a good team, but in no way, when you look at a traditional second seed, do you say this Grizzlies team lives up to that standard of yes. They are practically guaranteed to make the conference finals. I don't feel that that way about them at all. One team that I did mention there, and I said we were going to talk about them in just a second. Well, that second is up. The Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors dynasty is over, and it ended a year ago. Now, I'll tell you why I say that. They won the finals. They did. They absolutely did, and they deserved to. They were better than the Celtics. But that was not a dynastic win. Let's look at the Warriors' road to the finals. They beat Jokic entirely on his own in five games in the first round. Okay. Then they beat the Grizzlies. Now, the Grizzlies were already falling apart against the Timberwolves in their first-round series, and then John Morant got injured. So maybe not an easy series, but a lot easier than you were expecting. And then you get to the conference finals, and it's Luka Doncic, again, completely on his own, had just gone seven games with the Phoenix Suns, who were the top seed in the conference. He was battered and bruised, and you won that one. And then again, you made it to the finals. You won the finals. You deserve to. But let's look a little deeper. Do you know what Clay Thompson's numbers were in those finals? 17 points per game, 35% from the field, 35% from three. Draymond in the finals, six points, eight rebounds, six assists per game. Not totally different from what you expect from him, but very inefficient. 33% from the field, four and a half fouls per game. His defense was also so terrible through four games that people were wondering if he was going to get benched or even played at all. Now, in the final two games, he was excellent on defense, and it really gave him some credit, gave some credence to Steve Kerr for keeping him in there because he was awful in those first four games. And then Jordan Poole, the next coming of Steph Curry. In the finals, 14 points per game, 1.8 rebounds, 1.8 assists. 43.5%, two turnovers per game. Not very good. A lot of reason that people have been so optimistic on the Warriors is that they can develop their players, and they have some young talents. Oh, yeah, sure, like James Wiseman. Oh, wait, he's on the Detroit Pistons now. Moses Moody, what's he doing for you? Jonathan Kaminga, how's his progression been? There are real troubling parts of this Warriors roster that people have looked at as positives that are actually negatives. Now, the one good thing I will say is Clay Thompson is right back to where he was as an offensive player in the prime of his career, but he is much, much worse on defense. Clay was reliably a top three two-way player in the league with Kawhi and Paul George when he was at his best. Not at all the case anymore. He's just a three-point shooter out there. And now, a team that many are talking about and predicting to win the finals, the Phoenix Suns. Simply put, I'm not convinced by them. Now, their starting lineup is nearly impeccable. You've got one of the best distributors of all time in Chris Paul. You've got Devin Booker, who can score 70 points as your number two option. You've got Kevin Durant. Who is a top 15 player of all time we don't even need to talk about him we know what he's about you've got DeAndre Ayton he's a mobile big man he can shoot the mid-range he has a nice touch around the basket he can defend and he doesn't need the ball to score points and then you've got a coach of the year Monty Williams all of that is great and I am warming on this team I will say I'm not quite as pessimistic as I was when this trade was announced because they've made a few upgrades on their bench. Their bench was always my biggest concern. I like the Terrence Ross acquisition. He scored 16 points in his lone appearance for the Suns. But these other guys, campain Landry Shamit, Damian Lee, Jock Landale, Torrey Craig, Josh Akogi, that doesn't sound like a championship bench to me. It just doesn't. And if you want to look a little deeper and say, well, the Suns have the 11th most bench points per game in the association. That is true, but they've played the players right about that 11th most, most mark in minutes. So they're doing what should be expected of them. And again, it's a regular season. When we get to the playoffs, things change a lot. And my biggest problem with the Suns is that there is no real leader on this team. Now, mentally, it's going to be Chris Paul. Everybody's going to say that. But Chris Paul has a history of choking in the big moments. Devin Booker, people still want to call him a young player. He's in his eighth or ninth season, and he really hasn't accomplished what his talent says he would. Kevin Durant went on record saying it's not his job to be a leader. He just needs to go out there and play the best basketball he can. DeAndre Ayton has been at odds with the the Suns franchise for the past couple of years. He looks so uninterested and his body language is so negative at times that it's hard for me to watch. And then Monty Williams couldn't get these guys motivated for a home game seven just last year. There are certain intangible aspects of the Suns team that I just don't buy into. I don't feel like they are ready to win a championship from that standpoint. The bench, again, is a concern. Not as much as I may have initially thought it was, but for me, it's the mental side of the game. I just don't feel like these guys are the killers and the assassins that are ready to go take the finals. I mean, your one tough guy was Jay Crowder. And, you know, Crowder's replaceable from a talent perspective, but he was your one, he was your one enforcer. You lost your best defender, Mikhail Bridges. You lost your second best defender, Cameron Johnson. Crowder was your third best defender. The Suns were great because they could play on both ends of the court. That's also not going to happen anymore. There's just a lot of problems with this team for as much talent as they have. I don't feel like they're going to make that run to the finals. And if they don't this year, it's hard for me to see them doing it, doing it in the future. So that's my outlook on the Western conference there. And we're going to wrap it up fairly quick show, just about a half hour. On our next episode, we might get into some MVP talk. Nikola Jokic is the favorite to win that award. We might look at some NBA futures. We might see what's going on in the NFL if there are any other major headlines out there. But that's going to do it for today's show. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And until next time, have a great day, and I'll see you soon.